We are looking at the themes in the book of Exodus in the young adult class, and what we see in the book of Exodus is that it is a beautiful narrative of how God keeps his promises to and provides for his chosen ones, for the children of Israel, for his people. We also see in the book of Exodus that it provides foundational proofs for the promises that he has made previously. So we're looking at Exodus, but in the book of Genesis, we see promises made by God to Abraham that says, I will make you a great nation. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. And the book of Exodus provides proofs for the promises. And in Exodus 3.15, God says, I will be remembered throughout all generations. I must be remembered. It's a call to remember the proofs as you remember the promises. Don't forget the promises, but look at these proofs to say, wow, you are a God who keeps your word. You are a God who does provide as you have said. So remember the Exodus. Remember the things that happened here. Remember the crossing of the Red Sea. Remember how I delivered you from your oppressors. Remember how I defeated your enemies, Egypt. Remember the Exodus. For those of us that uh, had a middle school history class, you probably remember the Alamo. Do you remember the Alamo? Do you remember why you're supposed to remember the Alamo? I don't remember why. I, you know, I remember remember the Alamo, but I don't remember why I was supposed to remember the Alamo. And a lot of times, uh, we look at the Bible that way sometimes, where we say, why are we supposed to remember? Well, we're supposed to remember because of the promises. Just for this, uh, as, a matter, as a way of example, I like to think of uh, my wedding to my beautiful wife, Lauren. Five years ago, we got married right here, and we made a covenant. Like God made a covenant with Abraham, Lauren and I made a covenant before God right here, and that was a promise. We're supposed to remember the promises, but as I see Lauren live her life and the way that she uh, treats me and responds to me in my, in my sin, that I can see the proofs of the promise. I don't forget the promise, but I see the proofs. I see the proofs of the promise. In the same way, God is calling his children to remember the proofs as they remember the promise. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the final summary statement that God gives to Moses before he returns to Egypt and addressed Pharaoh for the very first time. All right, so this is a, a few statements by God to Moses as he addresses Pharaoh for the very first time. Up to this point in the book of Exodus, we see that the children of Israel have become a very great nation. God made, God made a promise to Abraham in, in Genesis and Abraham had a son, Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons, and they moved to Egypt because there was a great famine in the land. At the beginning of Exodus, we see that those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, and the nation has become great over the course of the last 400 years that they have been in Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, says that the children of Israel number 600,000 men. Most scholars would believe that that's 2 million people by the time you count women and children. So that we see here that they have become a great nation fulfilling the promises at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. Because the children of Israel are so huge, the numbers are so great in the nation of Egypt, the Egyptian authorities, Pharaoh, is afraid. We don't want this overwhelming group of non-Egyptians to be in our country, because if we are attacked from the outside, the last thing that we want is another enemy from the inside, and so they begin oppressing the children of Israel and commit them to slavery, 
And there's even a barbaric decree that is issued that allows Egyptian citizens to take the babies of the Israelite women and, and throw the babies into the Nile River to drown them like a nuisance animal, all in an effort to control the birth rate, the population, the growing numbers of the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 says that God hears the groaning of his people, that God remembers his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So God raises up a prophet, Moses, the man who will come and be God's spokesperson to his children and to Pharaoh, the very enemy of God, to lead his people out of bondage. And that's kind of where we pick up this morning. That's the brief history of where we're at right now in Exodus chapter 4 of the final summary statement that God gives to Moses before he addresses Pharaoh for the very first time. So uh, we're going to be looking at a couple different scriptures, and several of them are in your bulletin, including this one. So if you would follow along with me, Exodus chapter 4, verses 21, 22, and 23. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn firstborn son. Well, we see here two statements. One, the first statement in verse 21 is is directed from God to Moses that says, I have told you what to say. I've given you power to do miracles. Go to Pharaoh, say the things that I've told you to say, perform the miracles that I've told you to perform, but he will not listen. The second statement in verses 22 and 23 are directed to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now this text has brought much confusion uh, over the generations of why would God say it this way? Why would God uh, harden Pharaoh's heart? And what I want to look at this morning is not necessarily unpacking all the theological implications of this text, but to look at the themes that we see because it has great relevance as we look to understand this text. And there is a running theme throughout the course of Scripture of the hardened heart. We see it from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament into the New, all the way through to the end, through the book of Revelation. We see it as a running theme. We see that the natural condition of the human heart is to be hard. We see it in Romans 3. We see it in Psalm 14. And we also see that the issue of a hardened heart has to do with who are you worshiping in your heart, not just mere obedience, not just rote obedience, not just behavior modification, that the things that God was asking of Pharaoh was not simply just listen to my words and just do what I'm asking you to do, Pharaoh. That's all I'm asking. Let my people go. You're a road bump. You're a bother. Do your thing. We'll do ours. We don't have to shake hands. That's not what God's saying. That's not what God ever says. God never puts out the command of, listen, just do your thing and I'll do mine. I just want you to obey. God is always calling the heart. God is always calling the heart to worship the one true God And as a result of that comes obedience. God doesn't call his people to just rote obedience. And so what we see throughout the course of Scripture is that the hardened heart is a very dangerous thing for everybody, whether you're God's enemy or God's people. 
And so I want to look at a couple texts throughout the course of Scripture that kind of show some of these examples. So look in your bulletin, we see Deuteronomy, chapter 15. Deuteronomy was written during the time of uh, the children of Israel being in the wilderness. So this is directed towards this generation that we're talking about. Not future, it is directed towards future generations, but specifically the generation that was under the oppression of Pharaoh is hearing this text. It says this, Deuteronomy 15, 7, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that, your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse 9, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. There's a warning here by God to the children of Israel that have just been freed from the oppressors that says, be careful that you don't let seeds of indifference or bitterness drop into your heart because that's how a hardening of a heart happens. That's how it happens. It starts small. It always starts small. And you must be careful because you are susceptible to this. You are not immune to this. Even in a situation of a brother being in need, don't look away. Don't judge him by saying, eh, maybe he got himself in that situation, so therefore I don't need to participate in helping him. Or why should I be the one? Be careful. In verse 9 it says, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. It doesn't say take care lest you start an initiative that targets the poor so you can take advantage of them. It doesn't say that. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. Lest that seed drop, it is left unaddressed and your heart becomes hardened. It's a matter of worship of the heart. It's always been a matter of worship of the heart. Again, in your bulletin we see in the book of Psalms, chapter 95, Halfway through the chapter in verse 7, it says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Kind of sounds like Psalm 23, doesn't it? It's, it's real pleasant. It's real peaceful. He is our shepherd. We are his sheep. He provides for us. There are still waters and green pastures, and it's all just comfortable. But then it says, Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear the nudging of the Holy Spirit, verse 8, speaking to people who believe in God, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. So what happened in Massa and at Meribah in the wilderness? The story begins in Exodus chapter 16 when the people who had been freed from their oppressors, the Egyptians, and they had miraculously crossed the Red Sea and seen the bad guys, their enemies, not only defeated but destroyed when the Red Sea closed upon them and the enemy was obliterated. But days after that, they grumbled to God and said, we're hungry. Did, God, did you bring us here to die? I, we don't have any food. What were you thinking? This is the wilderness. At least back home in Egypt, we had food. We can provide for ourselves. God, who is a God who keeps his promises to and provides for his children, said, okay, I will provide for you. I have made promises to you. I will not neglect my promise. I will provide. So he gave them quail, Exodus 16. He gave them manna. Who saw that coming? Manna from heaven. Miraculous provision. Daily provision. Exodus 16. Move forward just slightly. All their needs have been met. Their bellies are full. Exodus 17, 
Oh, we're thirsty. God. And the children of Israel blasphemously grumble against God and say, accusing God, you brought us and our children here to die. Why, God? Their hearts were hardened. They had seen the goodness of God. This wasn't following generations. They had seen the Red Sea cross. They crossed on on dry ground themselves, and their hearts were hardened. So in Psalm 95, when it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, prove my promise, proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation. They are people who go astray in their heart. Worship is a matter of the heart. They have not known my ways, therefore I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Be warned, even children of God, not just the enemies of God. Be warned, children of God, about a hardened heart. Into the New Testament, the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 16, this is my translation, address Jesus and they say, Jesus, why don't you just give us a sign? Just show yourself to us as being from God and that it'll all make sense and Every, all the pieces will come together. Just, just show, give us, give us, show us something, God. But at this point in the narrative of Matthew, Jesus had already raised the dead, fed the 5,000, given sight to the blind, healed the lepers, healed many people. What, what, what is left to show you that I am God? Their hearts were, were hardened. In, in, in spite of all the things that they had seen, their hearts were still hardened. They were not worshiping with their hearts, and therefore, they did not, could not obey. Moving forward in the New Testament, we see in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, actually commentary being offered by the author of Hebrews on Psalm 95 that we just looked at. So he's speaking to first century Christians, people who knew of Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, knew that he came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, came back to life after three days and ascended to sit at the right hand of God. People who believed that, the author of Hebrews is speaking to Christians, and he's offering commentary on Psalm 95 that says, be careful that you don't have a hardened heart like they did in the wilderness at at Massa and Meribah. Be warned, Christians. This isn't just about the pesky children of Israel in the wilderness. This isn't just about the enemies of God. We are all susceptible to a hardened heart. We see a common denominator here of defiance and disbelief in spite of overwhelming evidence. And though Pharaoh's heart was hardened tragically because he'd been generationally involved in slavery and baby killing and he even shook his fist at God in Exodus 5 that says, who is this God and what does he have to do with me? Not only do I not believe you, Moses, but I'm going I'm to I'm turn up the oppression on the children of Israel. I'm not going to supply them with the means to make the bricks that I demand of them, so now they have to go work for it, just thus doubling their workload. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, that very day it said he made that command. Who is this God and what does he have to do with me? And we also must be constantly looking at our own hearts to make sure that there aren't little seeds that are left unaddressed that can lead to a hardened heart. There have been times in my own life when I've struggled with cynicism. 
and bitterness and unforgiveness? Have you? Have you been wounded legitimately by somebody, even within your own family? Or a situation at work? Or just your life situation that you wish were better, maybe should be better, or ought to be better when other people have things more together than, than you? You see we, see, we see all throughout Scripture, and I think nobody would argue that a hardened heart can come after generations of refusing God, as in the case of Pharaoh. But a hardened heart begins often after one conversation. A hardened heart often can begin after one bad day, one situation at work, one bad turn financially. A hardened heart can often begin with with, with one interaction when you were legitimately wronged or taken advantage of or looked over, one doctor's visit. Sin left unaddressed will always get worse. It's it's an infection, infection that isn't dealt with will, will always grow. And this is a call to believers everywhere to not let our hearts get hardened, to make sure that we are worshiping with our whole heart all the time, which is a tough call, but is why we need the gospel. Now we look at this difficult text of, of, of Pharaoh's heart being hardened and there's mystery there. Why would God do those things? And thankfully, we have the Bible to interpret the Bible. And we see in Romans chapter 9 that this text is actually addressed. And we see that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he works in mysterious ways. And we don't completely understand. But we see another running theme through Scripture that God is the one who raises nations and levels them. That God is the one who raises kingdoms and brings them down. And we see that evidenced in the book of Exodus. We see the very nation of Israel start with brothers and end up to be a nation with a government and with Moses and his leadership and the dispersal of leadership. We see law, we see military. I mean, we see a nation formed in just a couple verses. At the same time, we see a mighty nation, the Egyptian nation, crumble. One was God, the other was God. God is the one, and God is still the one. In the midst of our election, and the debates and the weirdness of it all, God is and was and is going to continue to be the one who is in control. And he is the one who places people. And he is the one who topples people. And there is great opportunity, believer, for us to have seeds of bitterness even in our current situation. Is everybody angry? <laughs> you know, both sides, up and down, right and left. It's easy to say, yeah, but we have the right to, and they're wrong, and there's bad stuff, and blah, 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 blah. Take heart. Be careful. God is in control. He always has been. It's the promise. We need to look at the proof. Don't trust the situations that we're in. Trust our God. And we must be careful that we do not allow our hearts to get hardened. The next thing that we see, the second statement, in verses 22 and 23 say, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Or in the NIV it says, worship me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Since Exodus is foundationally important because it shows how God interacts with his children, it also shows how God communicates with his children. One of the things that we see throughout the Bible, but specifically in Exodus, is a literary 
tool known as type. And we see a type here in this text. Type is defined as something that is used as a pattern or a template, a foreshadowing of something greater, a veiled, incomplete image of something later to be revealed. Something used as a pattern or a template, a foreshadowing of something greater, a veiled or incomplete image or a shadow of something later to be revealed. You see, when God made his promise to Abraham in the middle of Exodus, Abraham didn't have all the facts. He just had a promise. I will make your nation great. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. I will provide for you and your generations. He didn't know that the coming Messiah would be named Jesus, or that he'd be born in Bethlehem, or that he'd be born of, of a woman named Mary from a virgin birth. He, there are a lot of facts that we have now that he didn't have. There's something we call progressive revelation, that throughout, throughout the course of the Old Testament, God was progressively revealing himself to his children, giving hints and shadows of this is a coming fulfillment of these promises that I have made. You can trust them. You can find hope and peace in these in this progressive revelation. And now that we have the entire book of the Bible, which ends with the book, we have the entire Bible, which ends with the book of Revelation, we believe that God is not progressively revealing himself, that we have the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ, and so we're not looking for further answers. We have it all right here, right now. Praise the Lord. So back in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, when God calls Israel his firstborn son, he's presenting them as a type. He's presenting them as a template. He's presenting them as a veiled shadow of a future fulfillment of something greater that is to come, which we know of now as Jesus Christ. So if we think through this template, if the children of Israel are the firstborn son of God, a reference to the Messiah, then in this text, who would, who would Moses be? If the children of Israel are the son of, is the son of God, who's Moses in this example, this template? Can you think of a prophet who was sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord? John the Baptist, the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist comes on the scene announcing the way of the Son. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he, speaking of Jesus, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he says, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. So in Matthew, we see the introduction of John the Baptist who announces, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight, end quote, quoting Isaiah. You go back to Isaiah, and when Isaiah made this statement, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, Isaiah is actually referencing the children of Israel. So this is another example of a type where the children of Israel are called the Lord or, the, or Jesus or the Son of God. And Isaiah is saying, behold, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his path straight as the children of Israel return from the Babylonian captivity. Lower the mountains, raise the valleys, and God will make his path straight to continue to prove the fulfilling of the promises that he has made to Abraham. And I want to use this example because we see these types recurring throughout the course of Scripture, that John the Baptist is a prophet sent by God to prepare the way for his son, Jesus, just like Moses is a prophet 
sent by God to prepare the way for his son, Israel, subsequently defeating and destroying and obliterating the enemies of God, the Egyptians. And the story doesn't end here. It, it continues. In the 90s, Disney made a movie called The Prince of Egypt. And uh, at the end of the movie, the children of Israel cross the Red Sea, and, and basically the credits roll. <laughs> and we know that that's not the end of the story here. Where do the children of Israel go after God defeats Pharaoh? They go to the wilderness. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12 says when you have brought the people of Egypt of when you have brought the people out of Egypt you shall serve me or worship me in the NIV on this mountain well what happens to the children of Israel when they're in the wilderness they fail they face plant they are imperfect incomplete veiled templates of the coming Christ Days after the crossing of the Red Sea, the miraculous defeat of their enemies, days, this is not, Exodus doesn't happen over the course of, of years, this is days, this is speaking about one generation that was formerly in, in bondage and slavery. Days after the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses goes away and speaks to God on the mountain, and the children of Israel take their gold the gold that God gave them in Exodus 2 when they plundered the Egyptians as they were leaving and they took their gold that God gave them and they made a golden calf of all things and they worshiped it. And by worshiping it, they looked at it, they bowed down to it and they said, you are the one that has freed us from our captors, golden calf. You are the one that has provided the way for us, golden calf. You are the one that has done all of these things for us. Blasphemy. And, and why a calf? I, I think it's a bit ironic. My in-laws live on a dairy farm, and when Lauren and I went to visit them last, we took our two little girls to go see the new calves. <laughs> and they were in a pen, and their legs were wobbling, and when we approached the pen with our, you know, scary little blonde-headed girls, the, the calf cowered away. I mean, who thought it was a good idea to make a golden cowering calf and say, this is the epitome of, of, of our God. It's despicable. It's, it's sad. It's gross. It's, it's terrible. And, but ultimately, we do the same thing. We take the things that God has given us and create something sad and unfortunate and, and something that can't live up like our our 401k or our, our reputation or our career or our natural gifts and abilities, and we say that we're going we're gonna to now trust them, even for a little while. We're going to build them up for a little while and say, yeah, this is what's going to do it for me. This is what's going to make it for me. And it's just a sad golden calf, but this is what the children of Israel did when they face-planted in the desert. And then they face-planted again when they grumbled and complained blasphemously against God by not providing food and then not providing water at Meribah and Massa. And it didn't end there. You continue reading through the Old Testament, and it's a sad story. Throughout the kings and the children of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. They even built altars in the temple of God. Blasphemy of blasphemies. Eventually, they would be conquered by the Babylonians because they would not submit and listen to their God. 
thus ending their kingly rule, and they would never have a king that sat on the throne again, and they would always be under the thumb of some other oppressor somewhere, somehow. Israel failed in the wilderness because they did not listen to the word of God and worship with all their hearts. Their hearts were hardened. But if you look back to Christ, the type that we see in this example here, what happens after John the Baptist shows up announcing, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Lord, or the sin of the world, make his, here comes the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and then what does Jesus do? He heads to the wilderness to worship and fast and is tempted by Satan just like the children of Israel were. But where the children of Israel failed, Christ succeeded. Where the children of Israel failed because their hearts were hardened and they did not listen to the word of God, Christ succeeds by listening to the very word of God. When he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 in Matthew 4.4, Christ says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God meaning that every promise that is given by the mouth of God is what we are to trust. We are to trust that God will keep his promises and I will believe that. I will hold on to that and that will get me through the wilderness. And that's what the children of Israel did not do and failed and that's what Christ did and succeeded and proved to be the ultimate fulfillment of the Christ that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Ironically, what Christ is quoting here is Deuteronomy chapter 8, again, that was written directly to the children of Israel in the wilderness that says, you're not supposed to live just off of a full tummy. I will provide for you, but don't just look at the proof, look at the promise. Look at the proof and the promise. I will provide, but that's, that's an example of the promise that I have made, that I am God It's a guarantee. You can trust it. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it isn't clear to you, you can trust my promises. And if you don't, then your heart becomes hard, you cease to worship, and danger is at the door. Christ succeeds where the children of Israel failed tragically, hardening their hearts towards God. So we see Israel as a type or foreshadowing of God's son, but they failed in the wilderness. We see Moses as a type of John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord. So where does Pharaoh fit into these types? The man who is hardened, who has a hardened heart, who is doomed to destruction. We see that Israel had been in slavery for 40 years under the thumb of the Egyptians. When Christ came on the scene in the beginning of the New Testament, the children of Israel Excuse me. See, um, the children of Israel had been enslaved for 400 years. When Christ came on the scene in the New Testament, we see that the, that the children of Israel had been 400 years without receiving word from the Lord. A prophet had not spoken in the course of 400 years in between the Testaments until John the Baptist shows up. And again, the children of Israel are under the thumb of an oppressor, the Romans. They were not their own country. They were not sovereign as a nation. They were oppressed by another king, the Caesar. So when Christ came on the scene, the children of Israel were pretty happy. 
In Mark 11, verses 9, they said, Those who followed him, Jesus, were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This is our new exodus. He has come. We have a new king now. He's going to defeat our enemies. He's going to destroy our enemies. He's going to obliterate them. We're going to have a king on the throne. Literally, we'll have an, an, an army. Again, we'll have a reigning government. We're, a government. We're going to be great. This is awesome. We're now remembering. Remember the, ex, okay. Remember the exodus. Remember the exodus. Now Christ is coming. We're going to worship our new king. But to their dismay, this was not God's plan. And how quickly the children of Israel turned a few days later, they were not shouting Hosanna, but crucify him. God's plan was not to defeat the Romans. Pharaoh is not a type of Rome. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, chapter 31, and this is in your bulletin, verses 31, 32, and 33 say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Colon, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. There is a new covenant. The law will not be on tablets of stone. It will now be written on their heart via the indwelling of my Holy Spirit in a way like we never anticipated before. A new covenant, a better covenant. So this isn't about defeating the Egyptians anymore. It isn't about defeating the Romans. That the new covenant is not about defeating the bad guys the new covenant is Christ saying that I have come to defeat and destroy and obliterate. But I have come to defeat and, and destroy and obliterate you. Because it's your hearts that are hardened. It's, it's you. You are the problem. Your history shows that we all have sin in our lives and in our hearts and left unaddressed will condemn us. That we must die if we want to be born again. That the, the, the fulfillment of the coming Christ is about defeating us and defeating our life so that we can have new life, better life, greater life in the fulfillment, new covenant promise of Jesus Christ. That's why throughout the course of the, Old, of the New Testament we see verbiage like this, put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8. Put to death what is earthly in you, Colossians 3. Die to that which holds us captive, Romans 7, consider yourself dead to sin, Romans 7, because he himself who bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, 1 Peter 2. That only by dying, you and me, only by dying and being utterly defeated by Christ, are we able to then be born again to a living hope, 1 Peter 1. A living hope, not a dead hope, not a false hope, but a new living hope that is eternal. Only then can we have new life in the Spirit, capital S, from Romans chapter 7. That it will be written on our hearts and we'll have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to lead us as a guide. Only when we die and are defeated by Christ. Only then can we have a better eternal life, Romans 6. 
in John 3. Only then can we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Hebrews chapter 12. Unlike the world that we're living in now where we don't know what the future looks like. What does it look like after election day? What does it look like after four years? What does it look like in 20 years? We don't know. But when we die to self and are born again in Christ, we can be a part of an eternal kingdom that will not be shaken. That we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, 1 Peter 1. That we have a peace that passes understanding, Philippians 4, that the world does not have. That as a new people, we have a new identity and a new country because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation which is set aside for a greater purpose, a people for his, meaning God, for his own possession, who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we, you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy from your hardened hearts. First Peter 2, Christ has come to defeat and destroy sin, and he has come to defeat and destroy us. And only when we die to ourselves and submit our life to Christ can we truly have access to this new, better life, kingdom, and covenant through Christ alone. You see, through this type, we are Pharaoh in this example. We are the ones that need to be defeated. We are the ones that need to die so that we can truly live. Exodus is a monumental book that shows how God keeps his promises and provides for his people. It keeps his promises to and provides for his people. Ancient Israel looked to Exodus as a monument to his faithfulness and the freedom of their slavery and the defeat of their enemies, but they fell short in their wilderness because we all fall short of the glory of God. But all of this is taken and written by design to point us to a full fulfillment of God's promises, to an eternal freedom from slavery of sin, to the infinite defeat of death and hell, and, and in the perfect deliverer who, uh, who was and is and is to come, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are called to die to ourselves, we're called to die to our lusts, we're, died to, we're called to die to our materialism, we're called to die to our longings for, for money or for comfort or reputation or image. We're called to die to our frustrations and to our bitternesses, to our unforgiveness, to our insecurity, and say, I give up. I sacrifice myself so that I can be a part of a better kingdom only through the work of Christ. To die to ourselves is what we must do because our sinful nature is what enslaves us. And according to Luke chapter 9, we are called to die daily. Believer, we're called to, to look and, and consider our heart. Are there seeds of bitterness or unforgiveness or materialism that have dropped in there that are left unaddressed that could very easily, tomorrow, the next day, turn into a hard heart, a harder heart, to the point of, of blasphemy. We need Christ, and we need to die and die daily to him. And the question that I think that this text is asking to us today in 2016 is have we died to ourselves? Have we died to Christ? Is he our king? Are we a part of his eternal kingdom are there issues left unaddressed in my heart? They must be dealt with. We are not immune. We can't just look at Pharaoh and say, man, he was a really bad dude who did really bad things, but I would never be like that. We must die to ourselves so that we can live through Christ. Would you please pray with me? 
Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive, that it is active, that we can look at the Old and the New Testament, that we can see the picture of redemption in Jesus Christ. Father, we can see the picture of redemption of our very souls. We can see the picture of redemption in our relationships. As we walk forward as your chosen people, please help us. We need your help in Jesus' name. Amen.